Uh, we are going to be in Habakkuk chapter 1 this morning. Habakkuk 1, he's one of those tricky to find minor prophets in the middle of your Bible. If you start at Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, go back about four books, you'll find it. Those of you with Bibles on your phones will never know the joy of trying to find a minor prophet. So we're going to read verses 1 to 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted or paralyzed. Look among the nations and see, the Lord answers. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Well, before we begin, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we recall um, the exchange the Governor Felix had with Paul as Paul reasoned with him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And he was alarmed and sent him away, it says, for a more convenient time. Your word is alarming because it is the word of an eternal God to people like us, sinful people. And we can receive the good news and the hope that it offers, or we can push it away for a more convenient time. Tragically, Lord, these are, these are weighty days, and um, Lord, we are reminded in these times um, of our frailty, we are a blink. And Lord, this morning, by the power of your spirit, let us not have the heart of Felix today. May we hear your word and receive it. May we allow conviction its wounding, healing work. And thank you for the refuge, the mighty cross we have sung about this morning. Lord, encourage us this morning with your great power over all things, even when things seem to be otherwise. Uh, help us this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. 
the book of Habakkuk, just as a brief summary, was likely written around 640 B.C. This would make him an early contemporary of Jeremiah and Zephaniah. Uh, at this point, Israel had already been ransacked by the Assyrians. That was in 722. And the fate of Israel's sister Judah, the invasion of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, uh, is what's being revealed to Habakkuk here. We're, we're kind of coming to the, the climax of, of consequence and judgment. Uh, and this event would occur around 586 B.C. Uh, at certain times in the Old Testament, we're led to believe maybe Judah, Judah is marginally less abominable than Israel, but honestly, at the end of the day, they both come out at around the same, that is to say, dead last, um, Habakkuk is the story, or again, the climax of a story of a nation that has abandoned God, abandoned his word. Uh, In the resulting vacuum of godlessness, we see in this chapter the oppression and violence and evil are flourishing. And like Lot, who we're told suffered every day, witnessing the evil of those around him, so Habakkuk and the righteous were told in verse 2, crying out to help, crying out for help to God. Uh, the format of this book actually runs somewhat similar to the final few chapters of Job. I don't know whether you've noticed that. It starts out with a prophet asking God questions regarding suffering and evil and even God's seeming indifference to those things. God, don't you see what's happening? Aren't you going to do something about it? Do you even have a plan, or is evil just going to run rampant? Where are the righteous supposed to find stability in a society that seems to be going to pieces? Uh, God then responds to each of Habakkuk's questions with an oracle or a vision, reminding him that he does, in fact, see what's happening, and that he is, in fact, going to do something about it. And by the end of the book, of course, you probably know this passage. We have a a glorious resolution uh, in in 17 to 19, Habakkuk's submission, his acquiescence to the wisdom and the plan of God. He's obviously still definitely uneasy at what's coming, but he's able to close with that heartening prayer of confidence. And in our own day, when righteousness increasingly seems to be routed, in the public sphere. We, I think, need to follow. Well, we do need to follow Habakkuk's transition from confusion and unbelief towards confidence, towards rest in God's plan. I think we too, as Christians living today, can easily start to look around at the evil multiplying around us and think, how can God possibly be in the midst of this? But again, this is the voice of unbelief and fear, as we'll see. In one sense, knowing what was coming, it it wasn't reasonable for Habakkuk to rejoice. In another sense, it was entirely reasonable because his confidence had moved from, gee, I hope Judah can be restored to its former prosperity and safety and security to, I know that whatever happens will happen because of the plan and providence of God. And I can rest in that. 
The correct response is not to give the voice of unbelief any weight, but to see reality as it really is, which is not always what our circumstances suggest. Habakkuk's problem, and our problem, I would argue, is that we're standing too close to the painting, and it's an impressionist painting. You're going to be discouraged if you try to appreciate a Monet from four inches away. Uh, You need to back up to be able to see what's going on. So we need to back up and see things from their cosmic vantage point. And that's what will hopefully happen as we look at verses 1 to 11. Our magic ratio today, Atticus, I'm sorry, I just realized I forgot to send you those points. So you'll just have to uh, (laughs) hear me today and write them down. I'm sorry. Our magic ratio today is going to be 3 to 3. We're going to be looking at three questions that Habakkuk poses in verses 1, 2 to 4. And then we're going to be looking at God's responses to those three questions in verses 5 to 11. So 3 and 3. So as Habakkuk sees all this chaos and upset around him, he asks three questions. Let's be honest, they're really more like complaints of God. Number one, can't you hear Number two, don't you care? Number three, aren't you going to do something about it? Number one, verse two, can't you hear? O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? You will not hear. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. He's using a a, a kind of Hebrew poetic tactic here where you say something, you say the same thing again, a slightly different way for emphasis. Um, God, I'm crying out for help. It doesn't seem like you're hearing me, Habakkuk says. God, I'm asking you to intervene in the midst of violence. We're still drowning in it. It's as if Habakkuk is just watching this tide of evil inch up the beach, threatening to swallow up everything he holds dear. And he feels helpless to do anything about it. And he is helpless to do anything about it. Where did this tide of godlessness come from, this violence? Was it like a a rogue outside enemy that somehow found its way inside Judah's force field of holiness? Well, no. As we read throughout the prophets, it sprung up from within the Judea community, from inside God's national people from those who'd been instructed in God's law and should have known better. That must have been the hardest thing for Habakkuk, watching those who had once been oppressed slaves themselves now oppressing each other. It reminds us that this tendency to hate and inflict violence on one another is not because of a lack of education, or information, or moral awareness, fundamentally, or from not being able to see things through the eyes of the oppressed, not ultimately at least. Those things can maybe encourage some flashes of empathy, but they're not the magic bullet everyone says they are. The history of the world is a history of oppression, if you want the history summed up in one word. Not ultimately of race against race, of male over female, but of human against human. 
The whole narrative today is that if we just get rid of the oppressors, get rid of the oppressors, we will then be free to love each other. But you won't be free because the problem isn't out there. It's in here. You're the problem. I'm the problem. We're the problem. We're not just wrestling with established systems. We're dealing with entrenched human nature. The oppressed will themselves also oppress if given half a chance. Israel and Judah are perfect examples. When they're not being enslaved or, and oppressed by Egypt or Assyria or Babylon, they're enslaving each other. We see that. Far away from the racial tensions in the West, oppression is still going on all over the world. Between castes, and tribes and religions between powerful and powerless. In the past five years, 12,000 Nigerian Christians have been butchered by Boko Haram. Terrorists killed by their own people. Pay attention as you read through the Old Testament. Whenever there's leaders who love God, Israel enjoys a measure of civility and social stability. You take away those leaders and restraints. You stir in a few godless kings, a few drunk Levites. Things go downhill very quickly. And we're seeing, of course, the, the downward trend in our own day as well. As God's word is more and more suppressed, actively avoided, hated, so injustice and wickedness flourish. That's how it goes. The same thing going on in Habakkuk's day. And Habakkuk here has nowhere else to go. He knows there's no way out unless God comes through. Things are, are too bad. So he cries out to him. And, and what? Silence, seemingly. I cry out, you don't answer. Things just keep getting worse. You, I mean, you can see there's genuine confusion and frustration here in this passage. We can almost hear that. Lord, I'm supposed to be the prophet here, and I'm not hearing anything. And if we're honest, I think most of us can admit we've, we've been there, perhaps in the past, continually, regularly, maybe for years, crying out for some deliverance of some kind, and yet there doesn't seem to be anything from God's end. Instead of patient trust, we start to entertain allow that voice of unbelief give it a seat at the table of our hearts and he gladly starts to contribute to the discussion god's too busy god can't hear he's got bigger stuff to deal with he isn't just it goes down is there even a god am i talking to nobody and just spiraling downward so first question can you hear next question God, don't you care? Verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence before me. Strife and contention rise. Lord, all this violence is going on around me and you seem to be idle. Almost as if you don't care. Now, did Habakkuk know God wasn't doing anything? Did, did he have some sixth sense about when God just wasn't going to involve himself in circumstances? 
No. Habakkuk was making an assumption based on the way things seemed to be going. And the assumption was, there is no greater plan or purpose here. Um, Like how the person an inch away from the painting assumes nothing's going on. It's just random, senseless color and shapes, and there's no bigger meaning. Habakkuk's argument went something like this. Okay, God, you promised to bring judgment on those who break your law. Deuteronomy 28 and passages like that make, make that very clear. Habakkuk would have been very familiar with that passage. All these people are breaking your covenant, hating you, Lord, hating their neighbors, hating the righteous. Where's the justice? I don't see it. Therefore, Habakkuk concludes, you must not care. Or maybe injustice and evil just aren't that big of a deal to you after all. Maybe we're looking around at our own nation, seeing what seems to be a steady increase in our humanity towards one another, a lack of justice going forth, a steady increase of hatreds towards religion. We're coming to similar assumptions. God, are you there? Don't you see Evil's being called good. Good being is being called evil. Things are messed up. Habakkuk's second question. Don't you care? His third question. Are you powerless? Verse 4. Is justice par- uh, paralyzed? The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Maybe that's hyperbole. Maybe not. For the wicked surround the righteous Justice goes forth perverted. The rules, the laws that God had set out for his people, for their flourishing and their happiness, had all been thrown out and ignored. When a nation doesn't care what God says, there can be no justice. Justice becomes perverted. Verse 4, bent, twisted, partial, or paralyzed, as it says there. We, we see also that the wicked uh, surround or hem in the righteous there in verse 4. Close them in. Knowledge of God leads to freedom. Suppression of that knowledge leads to enslavement. Our own enslavement, the enslavement of others. And it is the righteous, the godly, the obedient that suffer most in the land of injustice. It's always been that way. Since Abel... Right through to the present day. The godless hate the godly. They want all trace of them and their God swept from the land. It's a constant reminder of guilt, right? You don't want that around. So suddenly the righteous find the law of the land turned against them. Soon there isn't anywhere to get justice. This is, this is where Habakkuk's coming from. And if we stopped here, if we only heard the voice of Habakkuk, this would be a very discouraging, disheartening book. Just like if you only heard Job's side, or his so-called friend's side, that would be a very discouraging book. Thank God the human perspective is only one side of the story. Verses 5 to 11, it's God's turn. Okay, Habakkuk. You've had the chance to ask your questions, to present your grievances, 
to tell me how things are going down there, as if I didn't already know. Now it's my turn. And brace yourself, because the answer probably isn't what you were expecting or hoping for. So we come, we've seen Habakkuk's three questions. We have God's three answers. First, in response to Habakkuk's first question in verse 2, can you hear? Well, the first thing we see is that God does hear, and he answers. Verses 5 to 11, that's God's direct answer to him. Throughout history, there has always been at least an awareness that we as humans are limited in our ability to understand the world. And there has always been this longing for divine communication. Pharaoh had his magicians. The Greeks had their oracles. Baal worshippers had their prophets. Um, The modern secular assumption that we can just figure everything out with enough graphs and data is a historical anomaly. It doesn't show our our progress. It shows our arrogance and our blindness. Habakkuk knew that Jehovah, the one true God, was the only infallible interpreter of circumstances. If he didn't answer, there would be no answers. At least nothing to bank on. And so God does answer without ceremony or manipulation or cajoling. He answers in verses 5.11, then again in chapter 2, verses 2 to 20. Very specifically, now we might look at the definitive answer Habakkuk got in response to his questions and think, wow, it seems like as a New Covenant Christian, we've got the short end of the stick here. Why don't I have access to that kind of revelation? That would be really helpful right now. But the thing is, um, we do. Now, we read this passage often, but uh, maybe turn to 2 Peter 1, 16 to 19. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. You can't get much more direct than that. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is saying here that even though he actually saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain and heard the voice of God, the scriptures that his readers had in their hands, which we have in our hands, is a revelation even more fully confirmed than what Peter or Habakkuk or Moses ever had. And if we want to be best situated to interpret the times we live in, best able to understand and discern and lovingly respond to the multitude of voices we're surrounded with today, we need to be people who treasure and rest in the scriptures. They are without question the surest and safest place to stand. 
Do we believe that? Do we believe God has actually spoken? Do we believe that the best thing for our families, for our churches, for our culture, is for the word to dwell in us richly? There are some Christians who go outward. They've got psychology and philosophy and science, all good things, by the way, in their proper place. But then the Bible just becomes kind of another subject to consult on things. Other Christians go inward, journeys into the soul, private revelations, putting way too much stock in feelings and impressions. When we leave the place of prayerful proximity to God's revealed word, we are in dangerous ground. We've left the boat. We're in danger of drowning. Our dependence on God's word is the only way we are going to be faithful in our age. Remember those who saw the disciples teaching, wondered about their uncommon courage and wisdom. Where did that courage and wisdom come from? Their extensive experience on fishing boats? Their vast exposure to rabbinical teaching? No, it says they had been with the Lord. It being with Jesus. Are we perplexed and fearful and doubtful in these days? Are we longing for a voice above the voices? Have you been with Jesus in his word? Are you walking with him? Are you locating yourself within the means God's given to hear his answer? So in response to Habakkuk's first question, yes, God does hear and he answers. He answers in 5.11. He has answered us. Next question. Are you idle? Don't you care? Aren't you going to do something? And God's answer is in verse 5. I am doing something. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. God says here, just because my intervention isn't immediate or obvious or doesn't align with your schedule doesn't mean it's not going to happen or that I don't care. And God does tell Habakkuk what's going to happen. And sure enough, Habakkuk doesn't believe it. What work is God going to do? Well, we're told in verses 1 to 11, he's going to raise up the Babylonians or the Chaldeans to be the arm of judgment against his evil people. Now, in the beginning, the Chaldeans were really not an impressive people. Uh, In fact, they only occupied a small kind of marshy region in the Babylonian Empire, about the the size of Nova Scotia. Now, they were small, but because they lived in this strategic location, they almost became an empire unto themselves. Even while Babylon was under Assyrian rule, the Chaldeans never honored treaties. They didn't pay Assyrian tax, and its governors regularly tried to take over the whole of Babylon, and no one could really do anything about it. In about 625, the Assyrians, as powerful as they were, remember the one, they were the ones who destroyed Israel, their power began to slip. And as they started to lose their grip on Babylon, surprise, surprise, one Chaldean governor saw his chance, 
took over the whole country. And then they conquered Assyria, assimilated its people into their own territory, and made kind of this new Babylon. These are the same Chaldeans being referred to here. Uh, In verses 7 to 10, we see that they were an efficient and devastating machine of an army. Horses swifter than leopards, gathering captives like sand, laughing at kings, building these siege mounds, verse 10, that let them ride right over the walls, essentially, of their enemies. And God says, I'm going to harness the chaotic power of the Chaldeans to execute the justice that you say, Habakkuk, is being ignored. Because that's the kind of authority and power that I have. Again, echoes of Job here in God's answer. Read about Leviathan in Job 41. See if whatever is being described there is similar to the Chaldean army. Huge, dangerous, unpredictable, still under God's control. God is always taking seemingly unstoppable forces and using them for his own purposes. Um, I've been thinking a lot about Isaiah 40:15 lately. All the nations in the world are but a drop in the bucket. Nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. Uh, we had some rain last week. I looked in one of our watering cans. There was a tiny little bit of water on the bottom just rolling around. Probably evaporated in half an hour. That little drop of water is the most powerful nation on earth to God. In history, today, into the future, God does not have his arms full. He is not overwhelmed. He is not uncertain or unsure about his next steps. Two massive superpowers, Assyria and Babylon, wiped away in a few centuries. He did it then. He can do it again. That is the reality Habakkuk. Not this little suffocating reality you've concocted for yourself about how things are going. The reality that I'm just uninvolved and uncaring. Are we living and working in light of Habakkuk's reality or God's reality? In these days, do we remember the government is still on God's shoulders and that he uses even the momentum of guilty men to accomplish his plan? So, response to Habakkuk's second question. God says, yes, I do care about justice and I am working, though not in the way you might have hoped. Third question. Are you unjust? Just like Habakkuk thought that because God wasn't working when he wanted him to, that he was being lazy. So here Habakkuk assumes that because justice is an immediate, it is, means it isn't coming at all. A lot of people, not just Christians, think this way. I can do this or that or not do that and just get away with it. No one else seems to care. I'm sure God, if he even does exist, doesn't care either. 
It's scary seeing how quickly evil and violence multiply when people assume there will never be any consequences. That's what Judah's assuming. That's what Israel assumed. And the devil is happy for us to believe that. The devil is happy for us to drift into destruction, lulled by that hellish lullaby, that notion. This carelessness isn't just an Old Testament problem either. Peter, again, he warns uh, about exactly the same thing. Second Peter 3. Above all, you must understand in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing, following their own desires. They will say, where is this coming? He has promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has at the beginning of creation. But they deliberately or willfully forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being, the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Everything goes on as it always has. That's what the people of Judah were thinking. That's how most people think. But Peter is saying, and in Habakkuk we see, that's an incredibly dangerous way to live. You remember the people in Noah's day who assumed that because there had never been a worldwide flood, there would never be one. They were all destroyed by a worldwide flood. A reserved judgment doesn't mean no judgment. It means delayed judgment. Why was justice delayed on Judah? Why does judgment delay in our own day? Not because God is unjust or that he doesn't care, but because he is patient. What we mistake for God's powerlessness may actually be his patience. I think sometimes we forget how patient God really is. People get so surprised and offended when trouble happens. They say things like, if God is so loving, why did he let such and such a thing happen? And yet all the while, we continue in our mistreatment of others, in our ignoring of God and his word, in our murder of the unborn, in our celebration of arrogant humanist philosophies that enslave more people than the Babylonians ever did. And yet that's not even the worst. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? That's Hebrews 10.29. Of all the evil that takes place, humanity's neglect of God's gift of his Son, Jesus, is the most 
punishable. We provoke God daily, just as Judah did. And yet God is patient, isn't he? He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. That is God's heart. And perhaps Christians, instead of longing for instant justice to fall on others, like Habakkuk, like Jonah, we should remember where we were when grace found us. Apart from God's grace, we are the lawbreakers. We are the oppressors. We are the violent ones. We are the perverters of justice. Had God brought immediate justice, the human race would have perished, ended at the garden. We should not assume that just because justice is delayed, that it isn't coming. That would be like reading a story halfway through and getting upset because nothing gets resolved. Keep reading. When I was little, I planted a bunch of seeds I found, like maple keys or something. And then I just sat down and waited for them to grow. And then I got frustrated because nothing was happening. But was nothing happening? No. In the dark, in the damp, the seed was quietly germinating. In about a week, I had a nice harvest of maple trees growing up. One of the lines from one of my favorite hymns goes, His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. We see in verse 5 and onward that God's purposes were ripening fast, and God's purposes continue to ripen fast. Folks, we need to remember that in terms of biblical chronology, we are in the last days. Christ, through his work on the cross, has made possible these millennia of God's patience. And the door of the ark remains open. The refuge, the mighty cross, stands ever potent, ever wrath-quenching. And if you are outside that refuge this morning, whether you're sitting here or watching, you need to just come in before the rain starts and there's no way back. Not that some foreign army is necessarily going to invade Canada. They might. But that Christ the King is someday going to invade and conquer a world that only ever saw him as a stone to ignore or trip on or throw away hate. On that day, he will sweep away every rebel power and bring everlasting life and glory to those who have trusted him and everlasting death and hell for those who rejected him. The Babylonian invasion, hear this, will be nothing compared to that day. If you are hidden in Christ this morning, the clamor and threats and plans and injustice of peoples and powers shouldn't surprise or worry you. 
It took a while for my son to learn the word refuge meant, but he's got it now. A refuge is a shield. A refuge is a place of safety and protection. And if you are a Christian, that is your life in Christ. And you can be confident that every injustice you may endure in this life is not forgotten by God and will one day be dealt with. If you were outside of Christ, remember that you are also outside the place of refuge. Don't mistake the present season of peace and patience as an indication of the way things will always be. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And that man is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are are sobered uh, when we come to a text like this. Um, and we just acknowledge that we are not wise. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. Um, Lord, if, if we had our way, things would just be terrible. We're short-sighted. We're impulsive. We think of ourselves before others. We are not good rulers. And yet we thank you that the world is not at the whim of good or bad rulers but that you direct the heart of the king like a river and that your purposes will continue to ripen fast. We thank you for your mysterious, at times inscrutable work of providence that has um, rolled on for millennia and will continue until you decide to return. Help us to be faithful in these days. Help us not to entertain that voice of unbelief in our heart, but to trust you, to know that your ways are best, that your story is better than we could ever have conceived of. That one day it will have a perfect resolution. Lord, for those who are outside the refuge this morning, we pray that your spirit would work in their hearts. That as the dry ground is softened after a rain, that after your work, your spiritual work in the hearts, there would be a softening to receive your grace and your gospel. We pray all this in your name. Amen.